Welcome back for another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about multiple sclerosis, and it's going to be a pretty big, a pretty big topic. But we're going to make it easy, I hope. Zach, what do you think? Hopefully, we'll make it pretty digestible here. Yeah, I think we have a pretty good like outline and a way to cover this. And, and multiple sclerosis is definitely a very heavy topic. There's a lot of information to go over, a lot that's still not known about it. And um, I think that we have a pretty good outline here, Rob, to really help people understand this. Perfect. And if you guys need a little extra help, please follow along with us on ninjaner.org. Grab your membership. We have notes, illustrations, everything to really help you out, learn this material. And of course, we have this uh, lecture already uh, on our YouTube. YouTube channel if you want to watch the video, but this is for a little extra help with this topic. So let's go ahead and get started then. The first thing we got to talk about with MS is really trying to understand uh, the introduction of it, the etiology. What causes multiple sclerosis? So when we talk about multiple sclerosis, one of the big things is to understand that we don't really know what causes it. It isn't like an autoimmune disorder. If you really want to go down the depths of it, it's a type four hypersensitivity, like cell mediated uh, types of effects. So it's a T cell mediated type of reaction. Um, I think when it comes down to the etiological factors, because we believe it's an autoimmune disorder, there's kind of a multifactorial involvement here. So there could be environmental components and in combination with genetic components. So what I mean is that the patient may be at risk. So they may have something called a susceptibility gene. So there's particular genes called HLA genes, which are important with our MHC2 complexes that the antigen presenting cells present. So your macrophages, your dendritic cells, your B cells, they present these things called MHC2 complexes and they present it to T cells. And the way, the reason why they they do that is they kind of engulf or are exposed to some type of antigen. They present that to our T cells. Well, sometimes they have a polymorphism. They have some type of mutation in the HLA DR2 gene that's involved in MHC2 complexes. And what happens is, is usually whenever these antigen presenting cells present their MHC2 complexes to T cells, the reaction is over exaggerated. It's way, way more amplified than a usual response in a normal human being. So that's one particular thing. Now, we also see that this is more commonly uh, occurring in females. So those with XX chromosome and particularly those with a younger age range. So 20 to 40 years of age is that common age range. So look for susceptibility genes and then primarily more female involvement. And again, that important gene is the HLA-DR2, that gene. There's a polymorphism in it that makes the MHC2 complexes whenever they interact with the T cells, the antigen presenting cells who express the MHC2 complex, when they present it to T cells, the reaction is over-exaggerated. Now, the question is, is what is the antigen that they're presenting? That's what we have no idea of. We just think that it could be a lot of different things. It could be an infection. So we maybe it could have been Epstein-Barr virus exposure, human herpes virus uh, type 6. You know, it could be a lot of things. There's even been some suspect sus- suspicion that it could even be related to low vitamin D levels, especially since we see a higher incidence in people who are above the, um, like particularly farther away from the equator. But either way, we don't really know the cause. I think the best way to sum up the etiology here is it's an autoimmune disorder with a genetic susceptibility, particularly an HLA-DR2 that makes them more exaggerated within their immune response, more particularly in females. And there's some antigen that is a trigger. We just don't know. It could be viruses such as Epstein-Barr or human herpes. I think that would be the big things to take away from like the, the etiology, Rob. All right. Awesome. 
Then I guess we're gonna move into the pathophysiology and a little bit more about really how these patients might then present with some clinical features. Absolutely. So I think one of the big things is that we already talked about how important it is to understand that genetic type of polymorphism, right? And the HLA-DR2 gene and how they have an exaggerated immune response. So let's say for whatever reason, you have a dendritic cell or you have a macrophage or you have a B cell and it's floating around and it becomes exposed to a very specific type of antigen. And again, we don't really know that. We just have a suspicion. Could it be a human herpes? Could it be an uh, Epstein-Barr virus? Whatever. They become exposed to it. They engulf it and expose it on its MHC2 complex. Once it does that, it then presents that to a T cell. Now, <clears throat> what I want you guys to remember is when we present the antigen present, when an antigen presenting cell presents that MHC2 complex with a piece of the antigen to the T cell, the normal response is for the T cell to pick it up and say, okay, got it. I'm going to release some cytokines that'll kind of alert my immune system. However, this kind of response is super, super exaggerated. So what happens is once the T cells interact with the antigen presenting cell, they start releasing tons and tons of cytokines and they start proliferating. And now these proliferated T helper cells, they can recognize more of these antigens. And you know what's really interesting? And here's where the problem comes is that these antigens that may be from the human herpes virus or the Epstein-Barr virus may have some particular similarities in protein or structure to myelin. You know what myelin is? Myelin is that structure that's that fatty protein sheet that wraps around our neurons within our central nervous system. So now we have our immune system kind of having a way of being able to target proteins or molecules that are from foreign antigens, but now it looks like myelin and that's going to be a problem. And the reason why is T cells have this ability to potentially cross the blood brain barrier. Once they cross the blood brain barrier, they now are going to be able to see the myelin that are on these oligodendrocytes and they'll bind to it. Once they bind to it and they actually are able to pick up a piece of the proteins that maybe are in that myelin and they recognize it as though it is one of the foreign antigens that they were exposed to by the antigen presenting cell, it then says, oh crap, I remember this thing. This is a foreign material. I need to alert the immune system to get them here. And so what it does is it says, okay, <clears throat> I'm going to release a ton of cytokines more of them and have them attract immune system cells into the actual brain. So it releases interleukin one and interleukin six and two minocrotic factor alpha and interferon gamma. And what I think is really important is what all of these cytokines really do. The first thing is it actually tells the blood vessels, like, you know, the endothelial cells in the blood vessels that are uh, there to increase the expression of little kind of like adhesion molecules that'll attach onto white blood cells and tell them to come into the area where the actual T cells are kind of binding and interacting with that myelin. So that's one thing, increased expression of the markers on the endothelial cells to pull more white blood cells. Then it'll also trigger kind of inflammatory response that increases the vasodilation and capillary permeability. So now the where the area is where the T cells are attacking or binding to the myelin on the oligodendrocytes, you're going to have the blood vessels dilate and become more leaky so that more white blood cells, more proteins, more things like that can leak out of the capillary blood and into the area where the T cells interacting with the myelin on the oligodendrocytes. Then these cytokines are going to recruit some of your actual immune system cells, more lymphocytes to the actual area where these T cells are already interacting with the oligodendrocytes. And then it's also going to start stimulating particular types of lymphocytes like B cells to tur turn into plasma cells. And now these plasma cells are going to start making antibodies. And these antibodies are going to tag and bind onto the myelin on these oligodendrocytes. And guess what? 
you're going to have some more types of immune system cells coming to the area where this is happening, like macrophages. And macrophages are now going to be super activated. They'll bind onto some of those antibodies via what's called opsonization and start kind of like really chewing up the myelin on the oligodendrocytes, or they'll be activated and start phagocytosing some of the actual myelin off the oligodendrocytes in general. And now you're just going to start chewing through them and ripping off pieces of myelin off these oligodendrocytes, leading to this demyelination, if you will. On top of that, you're also going to have a lot of these types of astrocytes trying to come in and put a lot of scar tissue onto the area to try to heal it up. But this causes these scleral plaques to form on the axons. And here's the problem. If my immune system got so activated, my T cells started, they cause cytokines to come in, they pour more lymphocytes in, cause lymphocytes to turn into B, uh, cause my B lymphocytes to turn into plasma cells, make antibodies. Antibodies attack the oligodendrocytes, particularly the myelin on them. Then we cause more macrophages to come in and eat up and break down all the myelin on the oligodendrocytes. I'm ripping and ripping and ripping oligodendrocytes off multiple neurons, all that myelin off oligodendrocytes and multiple uh, central nervous system neurons. And the problem with this is that I'm going to start seeing neurological types of effects and neurological catastrophes, just massive demyelination of the axons of multiple CNS neurons due to this immune response. Now, what happens is after this attack, right? So your, your T cells, your lymphocytes, your macrophages attack the actual oligodendrocytes on the axons of your neurons, demyelinate them, rip them off. Then what happens is you have these T regulatory cells. They're somewhat helpful. They try to come into the area and they say, okay, we need to try to be able to heal and remyelinate some of these oligodendrocytes. But they don't really heal very well. And so what happens is they release something called interleukin 10 and TGF beta. And what that does, it helps to really try to decrease the inflammatory process, kind of shut down the lymphocytes, the T cells, the macrophages, and just decrease the demyelination. And what this is trying to do is allow for some type of minimal healing, maybe some remyelination that occurs, but doesn't really last long because guess what will happen again? Uh, they're kind of trying to heal. You may have another immune attack. And so what we see here is that whenever we have an attack and then a healing process or a small healing process, attack and a small healing process is you see this relapse that occurs whenever they have an attack and then they go into remission where they're trying to heal and stop the attack. Then they have another relapse where they have another attack and then they try to remyelinate and heal. So there's this consistent types of what's called relapsing, remitting types of damage. And you know what's really important is the way that there's multiple sclerosis there's different types of multiple sclerosis. So one of them, which is the most common, 90% of those types is the one that we just said. There's an attack by the T cells, B cells, antibodies, macrophages that demyelinate the oligodendrocytes of the CNS neurons. Then T regulatory cells try to come in, reduce the inflammation, provide some little healing to put them in remission. So there's a relapse, which is there's attack, then there's healing, remission. And it just keeps happening over time, over time, over time. So we damage multiple, multiple neurons over a period of time. There's many other types, but they're less significant, but I'm going to quickly like rattle them off. One's called secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. And this is just like, it's almost like a patient is having um, relapsing remitting, but whenever they're having this relapsing remitting, they're also kind of having a progressive damage over time. Then there's another one called primary progressive multiple sclerosis. It's very, not very common, but it is very, very severe where there is this linear destruction with almost no remission. So there is a continuous progressive destruction of multiple oligodendrocytes without really any remission period. 
And then the last one, which would be the most severe, which is called progressive relapsing um, multiple sclerosis. This is where they have progressive damage, where they have relapses on top of their progressive damage with no remission. So again, I think out of all of these, the one I really want you to remember is the relapsing remitting. It's the easiest to remember. They have an attack. After they attack, they damage neurons. They try to have some type of repair, remyelination. That's the relapse. And then again, over time, they have another attack and then a relapse. That would be the most common type that I want you guys to remember. Now, when we talk about multiple sclerosis, going into the next big thing here is like, we're attacking neurons. We're demyelinating neurons, if you will, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're ripping the oligodendrocytes that have all that myelin, myelination of these uh, these neurons, the axons. We're ripping that off of these axons. The whole purpose to remember here is what the heck is the purpose of these oligodendrocytes in that myelin? It's to help with nerve conduction. So it helps with the speed of action potentials, the conduction of action potentials. So without that, the action potentials are going to be altered in some particular way. There's going to be a decrease in neuronal function. But the question is, is what type of CNS neurons are attacked? Because that's how they'll present. So the first one is they can attack the optic nerve. This is usually the earliest manifestation of multiple sclerosis. And what they like to do is demyelinate the oligodendrocytes of the optic nerve, which is important in vision. So because of that, usually these patients will present with an optic type of neuritis where they have decreased visual acuity. They may even have some changes in their color vision, so color blindness. And on top of that, they may have what's called a Marcus gun pupil or a relative afferent pupillary defect or an RAPD. And it's basically where you shine the light into the pupils and it causes a dilation of the pupils instead of a constrictive response. So that would be a relative APD with decreased visual acuity and maybe color vision loss. And again, this is the earliest feature. Really don't forget this, guys. Optic neuritis. Okay. The next one here is it loves to attack this like uh, kind of like tract that connects between the cranial nerve three, cranial nerve four, and cranial nerve six. Do you guys remember what that's called? It's called the medial longitudinal fasciculus. It's kind of like this linear kind of structure uh, com- coming from downward upward that connects the third, fourth, and sixth nucleus. Now, what it does is it allows for kind of like this nice movement of eyes, like the cicadic eye movements, allowing for them to be coordinated. So if I'm turning my eyes, if I'm looking to the right, I'd want my medial rectus of my left eye to contract, and I'd want the lateral rectus of my right eye to contract. And so there's kind of a coordination there. If I damage the medial longitudinal fasciculus, let's just say, for example, I damage the right medial longitudinal fasciculus, okay? If I damage the right medial longitudinal fasciculus, that's supposed to connect the right uh, lateral, uh, so it's particularly what's called the um, abducens nerve. So you know abducens nerve will supply the right lateral rectus. So I won't be able to abduct my right eye. Okay, that's the first thing. On top of that, it also will have a, a, a track that crosses over to the contralateral side to the third nerve on the left eye. So the third nerve that goes to the medial rectus on the left eye will now be impaired. So they won't be able to adduct their left eye. So they won't be able to abduct their right eye and they won't be able to adduct their left eye. And because of this, they develop this thing called internuclear ophthalmoplasia. And that's because, again, if I would have them, let's say, look to the right and they were to damage their right medial longitudinal fasciculus, they would not be able to abduct that right eye and they would not be able to adduct their left eye. 
If this happened to both medial longitudinal fasciculus, you could imagine that if they were to look to the right and look to the left, <laughs> the same thing would happen. If they look to the right, they can't abduct right eye, can't adduct left eye. If they look to the left, they can't abduct left eye, can't adduct right eye. And so this can be a pretty problematic type of issue. So watch out for that as a potential finding, such as internuclear ophthalmoplasia, okay? The next thing is that I would also consider these patients to have something called pseudobulbar palsy. Uh, um, so basically, you can demyelinate the cortical bulbar tract. So these are basically, you have upper motor neurons from your cerebral cortex coming down to some of the uh, cranial nerves that have somatic motor fibers, right? And this would be cranial nerve 5, cranial nerve 7, cranial nerve uh, 9, 10, and as well as um, 11. Okay, so if these neurons that are coming from the cortex down to these cranial nerves, such as cranial nerve 5, cranial nerve 7, cranial nerve 9, 10, and 11, were damaged, now I can't stimulate cranial nerve 5, cranial nerve 7, cranial nerve 9, 10, and 11. What would happen? So let's think about this. Cranial nerve 5, the somatic motor portion is to cause chewing. Right. So if I lost that ability to be able to chew, guess what? There's going to be a decreased ability to chew, decreased mastication, decreased chewing type of response. Plus, it controls their reflex, their jaw reflex. Usually upper motor neurons always cause hyperactive reflexes, right? So if you tap that like chin area and you try to create a, a jaw reflex or jaw jerk reflex, they'll have a hyperactive jaw jerk reflex. Cranial nerve seven. What's the somatic motor fibers supply? All the muscles of your actual, particularly what? Uh, facial expression. And so now if I'm not able to be able to stimulate the muscles of facial expression, I'll have absent muscle, absent facial expression. And again, depending upon which type of one it affects, it could be bilateral or it could be unilateral. The next thing is if I hit cranial nerve 9, 10, and 11, these are supposed to supply the skeletal muscles that are involved in speech and in swallowing as well as our gag reflex. So if I were to damage the actual cortical bulba fibers that stimulate these cranial nerves, 9, 10, and 11, that go to supply these skeletal muscles that are involved in speech and swallowing, guess what? They'll have dysphagia, difficulty swallowing, and maybe dysphonia, difficulty with speaking. On top of that, usually you have a gag reflex. Remember what I told you, upper motor neurons always cause hyperactive reflexes. So if you were to tap the actual uh, near the tonsils or near the posterior oral pharynx, you would have an intense gag reflex on these patients. The last one that we actually forgot here is there also is the somatic motor fibers of the hypoglossal nerve. So if a patient has um, some type of damage to the upper motor neurons that stimulate the hypoglossal nerve, they will no longer be able to have the hypoglossal nerve go and stimulate some of those skeletal muscles that are involved. And really the tongue helps with articulation of speech. And so if there is like this really spastic type of tongue, because remember upper motor neurons always cause spasticity, whereas lower motor neuron lesions always cause kind of a flaccidity. So in this situation, the tongue is going to be super spastic and it's not going to be able to help very well with the speech and the pronunciation of our speech. And so they may have kind of a flurring of their speech. So they may have kind of some dysarthria. Uh, that kind of sounded like a lisp though, I think, Rob. Right? Yeah. Only a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> I, I appreciate the, the, the try there. The though, attempt right? there. Yeah, it was, it was a good try. Please forgive me. I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. <laughs> no, not at all. That's, it's hard to recreate. That yeah, exactly. Thing. But I think that would be the big things to remember for those nerves. 
So we got cranial nerves, we got the cortical bulbar fibers. The other big thing I would think about is um, higher order neurons. So it also is gonna demyelinate a lot of CNS neurons, which are present within kind of the deeper parts of the brain. So think about like the limbic system, like a lot of your limbic nuclei. So the hippocampus, um, the amygdala, parts of your mammillary bodies and thalamus, et cetera, even parts of the cerebral cortex are gonna be demyelinated. And so because of that, there's going to be a decrease in that neuronal function. So if there's memory, there's going to be a decrease in memory. If there's supposed to be involved in emotion, there can be a decrease in emotion. So they may have like what's called depression, right? So it's altering a lot of those serotonin releasing neurons. And it also may really kind of affect the white matter. So, and the cerebellum as well. That's a really big one, Rob. So because of that, they can have ataxia, but particularly whenever they're doing like the finger to nose test, you'll see something called an intention tremor. So as you have them take their pointer finger, touch it to their nose, and then go and touch it to the your finger, the clinician's finger, you'll notice that they have a tremor as they get closer and closer and closer to the clinician's finger. And so that's a really important thing to remember. Other things that I would think could also be potentially considered, they're not like super pathognomonic, but it is something to think about on your exams, is something called Lermite sign. So because there's a lot of like demyelination of some of the actual neurons within the spinal cord as well, you can have like whenever a patient has a flexion of the neck, it causes this kind of electric sensation to move down the neck, the spine, and into the extremities. And this could also be seen in, in multiple sclerosis, but also think about your differential. You can also potentially see this in like a myelopathy, so compared of the cervical spinal cord or some type of like slipping of the vertebrae like spondylysis. Another one that's also a big one is Utah's phenomenon. They love to present this on the boards where a patient is, um, they may have multiple sclerosis. You're not completely sure, but they get in a hot tub or they get in a really hot bath. And then we get into the hot bath. What happens is a higher temperature, it alters the electrical potential of neurons even more than the patient with multiple sclerosis. So imagine having multiple sclerosis with decreased firing of action potentials. And then you put them in hot temperature that decreases the speed of action potentials even more. So their weakness and a lot of their actual like physical manifestations are much, much worse than their baseline when they're not in that hot tub. So look for that as a Utah phenomenon. They have worsening vision, worsening weakness, worsening bilateral internuclear ophthalmoplasia, etc. The other thing to think about is because we're still talking about the central nervous system, guess what's involved? Not just the brain, but also the spinal cord. So the spinal cord can also be demyelinated. It can demyelinate your dorsal column. So then you lose proprioception, fine touch, discriminative touch, vibration sense. It can demyelinate the um, the axons, particularly in the corticospinal tracts. So then you can develop weakness, particularly. And so this could even present like a low. You know, it's really interesting, Rob, is we can have patients who now present with a kind of a lower motor neuron type of presentation an upper motor neuron type of presentation as well, which is really interesting. So I think that's kind of the big things to remember for that one. Um, so the other thing here is that these patients also can have kind of like their preganglionic motor neurons of the autonomic nervous system also being affected. So it can really hit the um, the, the uh, myelin demyelination of the uh, the particularly the, the spinal cord, particularly in the thoracic spinal cord, and so or even in the sacral aspect as well. So they can have like loss of bladder control, loss of GI tract control, or bowel incontinence. So they can have bladder and bowel incontinence. That's another big thing to be able to remember. Uh, the reason why this would kind of happen is that your sympathetic nervous system is supposed to control the sphincter muscles, right? So via the alpha-1 adrenergic receptor that's wrapped around the uh, urethra. If particularly for whatever reason you have damage to the sympathetic part of the spinal cord, now you lose that ability to control that, that relaxes, and then you have urinary incontinence. In the same sense, the parasympathetic nervous system is supposed to cause contraction of the bladder and the intestines to help aid in emptying. So now you're going to potentially lead to retention, um, which you may potentially see as well. So you may see kind of a mixture of both urinary incontinence as well as urinary or fecal retention. 
Oh, man, they also affect so many other things. They can affect the anterior and lateral uh, columns of the spinal cord as well. Um, so you may see potentially some loss of um, some crude touch, some pain, some temperature sensations. Um, and they can also hit your dorsal and ventral spinal cerebellar tract. So again, worsening ataxia as well. Usually, I think one of the common ways that sometimes they'll present this um, on your boards or in easy ways to remember is that sometimes the triad of multiple sclerosis, easiest ways of being able to remember them is known as what's called Charcot's triad. So they'll present with like a nystagmus, usually due to that like internuclear ophthalmoplasia. They can present with dysarthria or kind of like a scanning speech, which is due to that pseudobulbar involvement. And they can also present with intention tremors with ataxia, which is due to the spinal cerebellar tract demyelination, as well as the white matter tracks in the cerebellum demyelinating. So this may be some common features that you may see, a lot of them. And again, just to recap them, don't forget optic neuritis due to the demyelination of the optic nerve, bilateral internuclear ophthalmoplasia due to demyelination of the medial longitudinal fasciculus. The next one is don't forget the pseudobulbar palsy. So demyelination of the cortical bulbar tracts, which can cause weakness due to trigeminal nerves. So particularly like the weakness in chewing, hyperactive jaw jerk reflex, facial nerve weakness. Okay. As well as difficulty with speech and swallowing due to weakness and not involving the cranial nerve nine, 10 and 11 and dysarthria due to spastic tongue. On top of that, they can have depression, they can have decreased memory, and they can have also some ataxia due to damage of the deep CNS neuron involvement demyelination, Lermite sign, flexion of the neck with electric sensation, Utah phenomenon, worsening type of uh, MS symptoms due to hot temperatures, and then demyelination of the tracts of the spinal cord, which include your dorsal column, so loss of uh, proprioception, uh, fine touch, discriminative sensation, vibration, corticospinal tracts, so particularly weakness. And if, again, you're damaging those cortical spinal tracts, you're damaging the upper motor neuron. So you're looking for an upper motor neuron type of presentation. So increased tone, hyperreflexia, some spasticity, positive Babinski's type of signs such as that. And then demyelination of the anterior and lateral spinal thalamic tract. So loss of um, pain, temperature, crude touch, as well as your dorsal and ventral spinal cerebellar tract, worsening ataxia. And lastly, demyelination of some of the actual autonomic nervous system neurons. So then you lose some of the control of your bladder and bowels. Okay. And then don't forget that triad, the Charcot's triad, easily remember some of them. Internuclear ophthalmoplasia, so they causes nystagmus, dysarthria with difficulty in speech, and then lastly, intention tremors with ataxia. Whew. My gosh, you were not kidding. This is a beast of a topic. Yeah, it's a monster, man. <laughs> but it's an important one. So it's a very important one. Um, and that made perfect sense. That was a lot, but that was great. All right, so that leads us now. We're going to head into the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Um, and really starting off with a first line diagnostic test. Yeah. So I think once you've, you're able to delineate that this patient has MS based upon that massive amount of information that we talked about, um, their clinical features, which is really, really important. Then you start moving into thinking about getting an MRI of the brain and spinal cord with and without contrast. And what you're looking for is you're looking for a lot of demyelinating lesions, particularly involving very specific areas. Don't forget these. The periventricular white matter is usually the earliest to get affected. Then you start, and again, with we talk about that one, you're talking about a lot of those cortical potential fibers that are moving like through the area of the corona radiata, the internal capsule. Then you're talking about the brainstem. So think about that pseudobulbar palsy effect. Then you're talking about the spinal cord. So then you're seeing a lot of that spinal cord demyelination of the ventral, uh, lateral, uh, dorsal, spinal, uh, the, all those tracks, as well as the corticospinal tracks. Again, demyelination of a lot of those um, autonomic nervous system ganglia. 
and then cerebellum where you're seeing the ataxia. So again, think about the areas where this would affect and it would may make your life a little bit easier. So again, brainstem, you're seeing a lot of that involvement from the medial longitudinal vesiculus and the uh, cortical bulbar tracts. Cerebellum, you're seeing demyelination of those white matter neurons. Spinal cord, you're seeing demyelination of the corticospinal tracts, dorsal uh, tract, uh, lateral and anterior white column tracts, and as well as some of the autonomic preganglionic motor neurons. Now, when you look at the MRI, what you're looking at is particularly your T1 sequence to show kind of your basic anatomy and the lesion will kind of really look darkish. When you look at the T2 sequence or the T2 flare, the lesion really shows up really bright white. So look for these really bright white lesions near the periventricular white matter, brainstem, spinal cord, and cerebellum that bright white on T2, dark on T1. Now, if you have a patient who's currently having an acute flare-up, so they're having a relapse at this moment, sometimes with the contrast, it'll really light up those acute lesions and won't light up the chronic lesions that you see on the T2 flare. So that might be another thing to really help to pick up if they're having an acute type of process. And I would consider that. Now, oftentimes MRI is really used in something called the McDonald's criteria, their revised McDonald's criteria, to really help you to establish the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. So that's a really important thing that I would want you guys to remember. We are not going to go through that. It's just too much. Take some time to be able to review that if you guys want to. I think it's a little bit beyond the scope of this lecture, but understand that criteria that you really need that to use that in aiding in the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Now, maybe Maybe you also don't have access to an MRI at this point. Sometimes what you can do is if you're in the office and you have access to some of these things or you can do these while you're getting ready to send them to get an MRI at some point, you can use other second line tests or other adjunct tests to help to aid in the diagnosis. So sometimes you can do something called these visual evoked potentials. And basically, you're kind of like exposing these patients to very specific visual stimuli to see if it hits the retina, travels down the optic nerve at a proper conduction potential. But what do we know about multiple sclerosis? What nerve does it hit earliest? The optic nerve. And it demyelinates it. So it's going to affect the conduction potential. So what will we see? A very low conduction velocity when we expose them to particular visual stimuli, when we do visual evoked potentials. Um, the other thing you can do is if you're really concerned that they have something else going on and it's not necessarily multiple sclerosis, for whatever reason, you're trying to rule out like meningitis, encephalitis, or some type of perineoplastic syndrome, or whatever else it may be, transverse myelitis, who knows? You're trying to really kind of go through and figure something else out. You can do a lumbar puncture. It's not going to yield a true like, oh, this is definitely diagnostic, but it can maybe help. So let's say that you did an LP and you found a lot of what's called these IgG antibodies that when you put them on electrophoresis, they band out in this really interesting way that we call oligoclonal banding. So that may be one particular thing that you may pick up if you did an LP. I would just take that into consideration. You see oligoclonal banding on uh, LP and positive visual evoked potentials that is somewhat suggestive of MS, but get the MRI using revised McDonald criteria to really hammer in and nail in the diagnosis. Okay. So that would cover the diagnosis, Rob. All righty. Sounds good. Next and last, we're going to go ahead and cover treatment. We're going to start by going over the acute treatment, supportive therapy, and then really prevention of those flare-ups. So, Zach, go ahead and take it home. Yeah, so I think one of the big things is whenever you have a patient who's having an acute exacerbation, so they're coming in with maybe worsening types of weakness in comparison to what they usually have or worsening vision changes, worsening intranuclear ophthalmoplasia, worsening pseudobulbar palsy, worsening weakness or sensation loss or whatever. In, in that sense, you know that they may be having an acute exacerbation 
masturbation, if you get the MRI and you see on contrast study that they have new lesions. If that's the case, then I would consider putting these patients on high dose corticosteroids. So something like methylprednisolone, which you can give IV or prednisone, which you can give PO. And really, these are just going to try to really shut down and really dampen the immune system and just prevent this intense attack of the central nervous system. The other thing I would consider, though, is if the corticosteroids are not working or the patient has a massive contraindication to getting put on corticosteroids for whatever reason, then I would do something else to clear out these kind of antibodies that are really causing attack to the um, central nervous system, such as what's called plasmapheresis. And so plasmapheresis is an interesting type of process or plasma exchange where you put in a pretty big like dialysis line and then you suck out some of the antibodies from the plasma that's causing this problem. So you're removing the source. So that's an interesting therapy that you can use in acute exacerbations of MS. Um, the other thing for MS is because we talked about these patients having upper motor neuron lesions because you're attacking their corticospinal tracts, they're going to have a lot of the upper motor neuron lesion types of presentation. So spasticity is one of those. Um, spasticity is really, really painful sometimes. And so what we can consider is using different types of antispasmodic agents like baclofen or diazepam and muscle relaxers like tizanidine and, uh, and methocarbamol, th things of that nature. Um, we also should treat some of the other kind of like demyelination of their spinal cord. So they're going to have like maybe some numbness, some tingling, some paresthesias. Um, I mean, that could be somewhat annoying. And so considering things like gabapentin or pregabalin, uh, tricyclic antidepressants for the neuropathy related to that may also be beneficial. And don't forget about these patients' mental health. Again, you're demining some of the neurons that are involved in serotonin release, so they may have a pretty significant depression, anxiety. So treating these patients with antidepressants, SSRIs, um, would be very, very important for these. The last thing is that these patients are going to be at risk for relapses, right? So again, I told you that the most common type is which one? Relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis. So they may have a period where they have an attack, then they go into remission. But again, at some point in time, they're going to have another attack possibly. How do we prevent them from developing you know, future flare-ups or at least try to stop that from happening? We have to kind of shut down their immune system. We have to dampen their immune system a little bit so that whenever they develop another acute flare-up, their immune system isn't so hyperactive that it's going to cause more damage to the central nervous system, demyelinating more of those um, oligodendrocytes in the CNS. And so what we do is we give immunosuppressants. So we can do things like interferon beta. This may be something that helps to be able to inhibit those T cells from really triggering that inflammatory cascade that they're doing, releasing interleukin-1, interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, transforming growth factor beta that pulls in more T cells, more B cells, more macrophages that damages those oligodendrocytes. So that may be one thing. Another commonly utilized one is called glimeteromere acetate. It also inhibits the T cells from releasing tons of cytokines. It's really interesting and it kind of acts as a decoy. So glimeteromere has proteins that kind of resemble myelin. So instead of the T cells and B cells and the macrophages attacking the myelin on the oligodendrocytes, they attack the glutaramere acetate. So it'll kind of get bound up with that. So that's a kind of an interesting concept. The other thing is we can use like monoclonal antibodies to kind of really block up the antibodies that are produced by plasma cells or inhibit the plasma cells. Um, so one is called um, acrolizumab and it inhibits like the activation of B cells and plasma cells by decreasing their antibody production. So if you don't make these antibodies, you don't attack those myelin proteins that are on the oligodendrocytes and then cause more damage by macrophages or other immune system cells. The other thing is natalizumab and that one's a really cool one. It actually inhibits the B cells and T cells. And what it does is it actually prevents them from being able to cross the blood brain barrier. So if I can't get T cells across the blood brain barrier to bind onto myelin on the oligodendrocytes, I could potentially stop them from causing that for further damage. So those would be the things that I would consider as the treatment, uh, particularly those patients with uh, multiple sclerosis, Rob. All right. And that does it for this podcast episode on multiple sclerosis. Not too bad. That was a pretty 
pretty straightforward one and uh, a lot of information, but well presented. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate you guys uh, you know, taking the time to listen to this podcast. I really hope it made sense. I th- really urge you guys that if there was a lot of information, please go into the notes that we have for this podcast, particularly on our website on ninjaner.org. Check that out. We have a really, really thorough look at multiple sclerosis. If you guys also want to watch one of our videos on YouTube, go check that out as well to get a little bit more of an in-depth look. I hope this made sense. I hope that you guys liked it. And as always, until next time. 